Good morning. Earlier it was raining, now it seems clear. Later it will be raining. <laughs> then it will be clear. And while we don't need mindfulness to really know, know that, <laughs> uh, mindfulness helps to see our reactions or responses to the uh, rain or the clear moments of our experience. And so I'm, I'm glad to be uh, exploring uh, mindfulness again. This is the seventh uh, session exploring the four foundations of mindfulness. I'll be, I plan to do one more uh, on the 26th in two weeks and to really uh, complete the, the series. And uh, so far we've given attention to the first three foundations of mindfulness and today we'll focus on the fourth. And uh, this, there's this um, very subtle and actually quite profound set of instructions that we've been exploring. Again, my hope is that spending more time looking in uh, more detail at the text and at the instructions, the practices related to the four foundations of mindfulness will energize, inspire, and uh, inspire and deepen our practice. You know, again, I'm I'm very conscious and sometimes see it in myself that our mindfulness be practice becomes um, uh, lazy and pleasant at times. <laughs> this, is, this is one of the dangers of getting comfortable with meditation, right? We, we trust it to be relatively pleasant and calming, but not always so deepening or insightful. Are there any heads nodding when I say that? I'm not sure if this lines up with the Tibetan term, but in Tibetan tradition, they have a, a notion of a kind of meditation which they call stupid meditation. <laughs> I'm not sure, but, but it, it sounds like it might fit, right? It's the kind of meditation where we're kind of, kind of pleasantly calm, but not really very discerning or observant or whatever, and which, again, has its purposes, but again, I don't know if I don't know if that's what they mean by that or whether they mean something else. But when I've studied sometimes with Tibetan teachers, they warn against the dangers of stupid meditation. <laughs> okay, so we, we, you know, we don't have such a term in the, in the non-judgmental West. <laughs> Which may reflect our immaturity. <laughs> don't know. Anyway. Uh, so uh, there are these instructions for what might be called four ways of being mindful. It's, it's a nice way to look at it. Four ways of contemplating, four ways of being mindful, and uh, very much uh, on the understanding that a mindfulness, knowing what's happening in the present moment, and knowing that we know, is necessary for wise response. That the whole basis for mindfulness is that it makes possible wise response. And sometimes I 
think, and I've sometimes shared this on Wednesdays, that um, our practice can, in a sense, be boiled down to a very simple sequence. We're mindful in a given moment. We know what's happening. And then on the basis of our best wisdom and compassion, we set an intention, and then we act. And we do that moment by moment. And that's all we do with our lives. And if that schema has some accuracy, you can see that mindfulness is completely uh, central. It's actually a starting point. We, need to, we really need to know, and know in a way that's uh, discerning, what's happening. We need to know it accurately. And so mindfulness plays a completely uh, foundational role in the uh, development of wise and compassionate response. And that's why in the text, the beginning of the text, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, this 10-page text, which is the basis for really for our core practices here at Spirit Rock, it said that mindfulness is this direct path for the purification of beings. That's the language used in the text. It's a very, it's a powerful claim. And we've seen that there are, uh, so far we've seen that there are three ways of, we might say, contemplating experience, three ways of applying mindfulness. And we probably could have other ways, but these are the three classical ways. The first is mindfulness of the body. The second is mindfulness of feeling tone, uh, or the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And the third is mindfulness of thoughts and emotions. And, you know, you can look at the uh, diagram, or the schema, that Sally Armstrong developed, and you can have a, you can have a sense of this. So you, you'll see that there is actually uh, more detail in the fourth foundation uh, than in any of the preceding ones. Uh, but that the first, first foundation very, very crucial for a uh, more and more mental and virtual culture is mindfulness of the body, which again I have uh, presented as very, very crucial for making mindfulness come alive in this culture and the kind of lives we have because we are uh, conditioned to think so much and to come to the body uh, makes it possible to uh, break what I sometimes call the monopoly of the automatic mind, which can uh, just take us over. You know, we can live in that for hours and hours at a time. And mindfulness of the body really helps us to um, break through that. And again, it's not that thinking is per se wrong. It's just that being lost in thinking makes it hard to be mindful of what's happening and, of course, hard to be mindful of thinking. It's as, it's, we need, as it were, a larger context in which thinking can be wise. That's what we, I think, generally speaking, that's what we need in our culture. A larger context in which the thinking is connected with the emotions, with the body, and especially with wisdom, you know, and with the heart, and so forth. So we practice uh, mindfulness of the body. The main ways that we practice here our mindfulness of breathing, especially to give some uh, grounding and stabilizing of attention. And then we also uh, practice especially mindfulness of uh, postures and activities. Really, it's bringing mindfulness to our different activities during the day. So we might actually be mindful 
Uh, when eating, we're mindful of the sense of taste and smell. We can be mindful in walking. We can even be mindful in seeing. We can stop and just really stay with the sense of sight, looking at a tree or a sunset or whatever. We can be mindful of listening, listening to music or listening to the wind or listening to a creek. Uh, we can be mindful as we walk, mindful of the body and so forth. So this is really mindfulness in different postures, different activities related to the different senses. <coughs> of, of the body. And very, very fundamental practice. And you can see in the schema that there are other practices that we don't typically do here at Spirit Rock, that there's um, one, one on uh, mindfulness of the different parts of the body, which is done occasionally in some retreats. But and there's a teacher in Santa Cruz, Bob Stahl, who teaches uh, mindfulness of the 32 parts of the body is the name of the practice. And he actually has a website called 32 Parts of the Body if you want to research this further, which is quite interesting. And it can be a very interesting practice. It's a, it's a traditional practice, but it's not been developed so much here. And then similarly, mindfulness of the elements. Uh, I actually led a guided meditation in one of our sessions. And that can be very beautiful. It's really seeing the ways in which our experience uh, is parallel to the sense of earth, the sense of solidity, to water, the sense of fluidity, to fire, the sense of heat, uh, and to air, the, more the sense of space, that we can see how that manifests in our own experience. And I think I did a, a guided meditation which, which was inspired by when we worked with the elements when I co-taught the retreat called the Dancing Buddha with my colleague Heather Monroe Pierce, in which we uh, actually worked with the elements in um, this. We, we did this workshop at Esalen, and we were, did outside dancing with the four elements on the cliffs right next to the Pacific Ocean. So if you, and we, we did a version of that here, you know, which involved movement and connecting with the elements. And it's quite, for me, it was, um, it's a beautiful practice to really, it really can, it's one of the practices we do which, in which we I think it's explicitly we connect our inner nature with the, as it were, the outer nature. It's a beautiful practice. So, and then there's also another practice of uh, being with a corpse in decay, which we don't, uh, we don't do at all here. <laughs> if I could say it that way. But, but um, uh, sometimes we may have a chance. I think when we were covering this, I mentioned that I did actually personally do that at one time uh, when I was living in the mountains and I was with the carcass of a, a sheep that had uh, died and that was just there for a while and I sat with it for quite some time. And it can be powerful to, uh, you know, to, to watch a decaying corpse over a number of days. So I don't think that we'll bring that practice soon into our Wednesday gatherings, but it's good to know about. <laughs> and then the, um, the second way of applying mindfulness very, very crucial uh, and sort of a, somewhat of a subtle practice, but it's attending to pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And particularly noticing in our experience, I gave one of the handouts that's on the table is a, a sheet giving seven different ways to practice with this, but it's really um, a very important practice because we can notice pleasant, unpleasant, especially 
and notice what, what those are like in our experience and how, when we're not really mindful of the pleasant, it will tend to lead to grasping. And when we're not attendant to unpleasant, it will tend to lead to pushing away, to reacting. And when we study that, we can see those tendencies and be on the lookout. And it actually can be a very powerful practice. Something difficult happens to us. We have anger. We have distress. Can we stay with that distress at the level of pleasant or unpleasant, in this case particularly unpleasant, and watch those tendencies? And uh, this can really help us to uh, see the tendencies before they get too powerful, before they take us away for three hours or three days. Right? And that is, again, it's a, it can be a very interesting practice. The most uh, accessible, concrete way of practicing is just to have on your radar when there's a moment of pleasant or unpleasant, stay with it and see what the experience is like and what the mind tends to do, what the body tends to do. Stay. You can do this in meditation, you can do this outside, you can be with pleasant food, and really stay with it and watch what happens with the pleasant, with the mind. What happens with the unpleasant, with an unpleasant uh, body sensation. The third foundation is uh, a very uh, important, powerful practice. This is to be uh, mindful of, uh, we would say, of thoughts and emotions, and to uh, look at thoughts and emotions, be able to track them, notice them, notice when they're happening, notice uh, what they're like when they're around for a while, can I stay with them? So very fundamental practice that goes into some detail in terms of the instructions in the text. And we particularly focused on being mindful of when greed, hatred, or delusion are present. This is sort of where pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral go if we're not attentive they tend to go to greed, hatred, and delusion. So this is, as it were, a little bit um, uh, up the food chain, <laughs> so to speak. Um, and we can track greed, hatred, and delusion. Again, we notice them because if we don't attend to them, they will tend to proliferate and take us off into places which are not so helpful. And so again, very fundamental practices. Uh, the fourth foundation takes us into a new uh, area. And I want to spend the rest of today on the fourth foundation, give some uh, general understanding of the nature of the foundation, and then uh, suggest a number of ways to practice uh, the fourth foundation. And we already did one in the guided meditation where we worked with mindfulness directed by the uh, uh, Four Noble Truths. So. Um, a few general characterizations. I think that uh, when we read the text, it's actually hard sometimes to make sense of it. And I think it really takes um, some interpretation and some bringing out of the basic meaning. And I'll also say that there are different ways to interpret the fourth foundation. I think actually the same with the first three. And I'll be giving an interpretation. And just to understand that this is my way of making sense, and I've been you know, informed by um, other teachers and especially by this, um, this book, which is, if you wanted to read one book, which gives a lot of detail on the Four Foundations, it's this book, Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization, by a German uh, monk uh, practitioner named uh, Analayo, or Analayo, I think it's sometimes pronounced. And so 
I'll be giving an interpretation, but I think, it, I think it's well-founded and tends to correspond to what I've heard from other teachers and from, from reading. So um, the way that I like to interpret the fourth foundation is to say that with the fourth foundation, we move to more complexity and more subtlety. The first three foundations, in a way, we've looked at the constituent uh, factors of experience, individually, as it were, in isolation. We look at the body. We look at feeling tone. We look at thoughts and emotions. And we learn how to be mindful with each of those. With the fourth foundation, we go to a more complex aspect of experience, which is to look at the processes and patterns of experience. So we don't just focus on the thought or the emotion or the body sensation by itself in a given moment, but we actually bring in a way to look at processes, which means that we bring in more of a sense of unfolding in time. We bring in uh, consideration of causes and conditions. And of we, especially in looking at larger patterns of experience, we bring in the wisdom factor, which is quite crucial. We bring in wis- the wisdom factor and we bring in the uh, dimension of skillful response. So it's quite interesting. So far, we've just learned to be mindful. And we don't really uh, point so much to doing anything. You know, it's, it's more like, don't just do something, sit there, is the guidance, right? And it's to just to be present with it, explore it, be like a scientist exploring experience, but in a way, don't try to change the experience. Don't try to really respond in some skillful way which shifts experience, but just explore experience. See what it's like. What is the unpleasant like? You know, we, typically, the unpleasant comes, we want to get rid of it, right? That's our typical conditioning. And here we're saying, reverse the conditioning. And so there's a certain amount of training that we have to go through, where we don't immediately respond to this, do this, shift this, skillfully change this, but we say, let me hang out with experience. That's what the first three foundations are about. With the fourth foundation, we bring in the complexity of action, and we bring in the complexity, we we might say, of time, of sequences occurring in time, and so that we understand patterns of experience. That's really uh, what this is um, especially about. Um, And we, in the context of the fourth foundation, we actually respond as well to situations or states of mind or body or emotion which are not helpful. And we actually respond and shift away from what is not helpful. And so that's different. So I would say the two dimensions brought in are maybe... uh, yeah, uh, maybe if I could point to three aspects, we bring in a sense of pattern and process, number one, and that, that entails that we bring in wisdom, looking at the, how things work and why they work in a certain way, and we bring in responsiveness. So that's, that's, that makes it, so that starts bringing it more in alignment with a fuller response to life, really. It also starts bringing it more in alignment with daily life where we have to respond, we have to act. We can't just be mindful all the time. You know, what would you like? 
what would you like for lunch? Let me just be mindful <laughs> of my stomach. You know, we need to act, we need to choose. Um, what do you want to do next? Let me just be mindful of my thoughts. You know, it's more we bring in, we bring in the, uh, the action components. So the, in the text, it's expressed in this way. It's called mindfulness of dhammas, D-H-A-M-M-A-S. And that can be confusing, and it's translated in all sorts of ways. You know, in the text we have, it's translated as mindfulness of phenomena. Sometimes it's also uh, translated uh, in the uh, main text uh, in which this appears in the middle-length discourses. It's translated as mind objects. And it's also uh, translated sometimes as mental objects or mental qualities. And I think all of those translations are somewhat uh, misleading. It sounds a lot like the third foundation where we're where we're being mindful of thoughts, right? I would prefer a translation which is not literal, but something like mindfulness of patterns of experience or mindfulness of frameworks of experience, something like that. It's also confusing because the word dhamma, as probably many or most of you know, is a word with multiple meanings. And we, we uh, dhamma is the word in the Pali language, and we often use the word dharma, right? Everyone's heard the word dharma, uh, which is the Sanskrit word, and we generally, around Spirit Rock, we use, this, that, uh, we use the word dharma. And a dharma has multiple meanings. Uh, it can mean uh, the way things are. And I think the literal meaning, if I remember right, in the uh, Indian tradition, is something of a, a sense of foundation or something that we stand on. It's something, uh, it's just uh, some kind of uh, foundation. But it, it can mean uh, the way things are or the truth. It also, the, the Dhamma refers to the teachings of the Buddha, or in fact it refers to any uh, teaching with its aim at liberation. So in the Indian context, there would be different teachers. The Buddha was one teacher among several, among, among many. And people would ask a teacher, what's your dhamma? Meaning, what's your teaching about freedom? Or what's your spiritual teaching? And that would be another way that the words used. And here, the words used in, we might say, a third fundamental meaning, which is that it has to do, it could literally be called a dhamma is a phenomenon or a thing. And so we speak about all these things, all these dhammas. You know, that's another way the words used. Uh, and so we would talk about, you know, uh, all the different components of experience, external objects, they could all be called dhammas, in a way. We don't use that language very much in our teaching, but that just, that is the way uh, the term is being used here. And so it's, we might say, this is mindfulness of conditioned phenomena. And again, particularly we're interested in the, in the uh, patterns. And the text itself gives us uh, five different frameworks to look at experience through. And I'm going to primarily focus today on the last of these, which is looking at experience through the framework of the Four Noble Truths. And I'm realizing as I'm speaking that this, I'm giving a certain amount of background material which can feel uh, not, we're not quite directly 
looking at why this is so fruitful, but I want to get to that in a moment. I think this is extremely fruitful framework and extremely fruitful foundation, and we'll get to that in a moment, but I just wanted to give a little bit of explanation of the text so you can read it and say, what did that text have to do with what Donald was saying? <laughs> you know, so I, wanted, I want to give that background so you know what the terms are. So the frameworks that are used here go through some of the frameworks that we use in teaching, some of the main frameworks. There are the frameworks of the uh, so-called hindrances, that which makes uh, clear mindfulness hard or impossible. You know, and, and there's the pointing to, I'm not going to go through these much, but it goes through some kind of strong desire or aversion, uh, sleepiness, sloth, what's called sloth and torpor, uh, some kind of restlessness, some kind of doubt. And then the second framework is that of the aggregates, which is a way of understanding experience uh, without us having a sense of self, but just looking at some of the constituent factors of experience. In a similar way, the third uh, framework is that of the different senses. The fourth framework is that of the factors of the increasingly awake mind and heart. Factors like mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy. And the last one is the model of the Four Noble Truths. Now, this, is, this can be quite complex, but I think there's a certain uh, logic that goes through this that I, just, I think is helpful to understand. And then we'll get right into the teaching of the Four, tru four Noble Truths. That what this is doing, if we look at this, it's actually taking us in a uh, gradual way from where we've been, which is looking at the constituent factors of experience, again, body, feeling tone, thought, and emotion, and then it's starting to bring us through the more complex patterns of experience, but it's doing so in a gradual way. And the first framework that we are asked to use is the framework of noticing that which makes mindfulness hard or impossible, without which we can't really go further too easily. And so this is like a starting point to use the framework of the hindrances which stand in the way of uh, mindfulness. And then once that's done, we look in the second and the third framework, we look at the basic nature of experience. We look at the senses, we look at the different components of experience, and then in the fourth framework, having done that, we look at the development of beautiful qualities, of the qualities of awakening. And with the fifth framework, which is one I'll be emphasizing, we then open up to the possibility of freedom. So if you look at it in that way, it's actually, there's actually a, a somewhat logical unfolding that goes all the way to ultimate freedom by taking us through a kind of training in which we work with these different categories. Now, I should say that the fourth foundation is almost never taught on retreats. We don't, you know, it's interesting, we actually don't work with, the, with this model in any explicit way, which is interesting when you think about it. We work with the first three quite explicitly. We, we don't work and say, okay, now we've got to the fourth foundation. Look at your, your experience in terms of the hindrances. On the other hand, we work all the time with identifying the hindrances and saying, look out for them. But we just don't call it the fourth foundation. And it's very interesting, probably about 10 years ago, I was on, I think, a month retreat, and I wanted to work with the fourth foundation. And I was working with Gil Fransdale, and I asked him, okay, I want to practice with the fourth foundation. How do we do it? And he said, I don't know, <laughs> more or less. We don't do it much. 
you know? There's no set of uh, practices that are kind of passed on. And so we actually, I actually worked with each of these five frameworks for roughly three or four days and spent my whole time going through and just being mindful and tuning in uh, guided by the frameworks. Because what this is really doing, again, I, I'm conscious of the, um, you know, the amount of work we have to do just to make some sense of this. But what it's really doing, it's taking us from the mindfulness of a discrete uh, experience like thought or emotion into this uh, mindfulness of the complexity of experience such that we look at the world through the framework of these teachings. Which, that's another way to say that, is we look through, we look through Dhamma eyes, or Dharma eyes, at the world, at our experience. And that's quite profound, so that we actually make this really a living experience, that the frameworks are not there for the purposes of doctrine, but they're for the purposes of guiding us to see experience clearly. It's really interesting. You know, these are not abstract teachings that we might discuss uh, outside of the application to experience, but it's very pragmatic. And so my experience was that this is actually a very minimal framework, but it helps me to look in a certain way. And again, it's the whole basis for the, the instructions on mindfulness. The instructions don't say, all oh, right, be mindful. Go away and be mindful. They say, be mindful by looking here, looking here, looking here, looking here. And that, in other words, we're guided to look in certain ways, and this framework helps us to look. And it's a very simple, minimal framework, but it helps us uh, to look in that way. And it really, uh, to me, it's very interesting because it's this very beautiful mix of experience guided by a framework. So the frameworks really come alive. They're not abstract. They can really be applied to experience. So how to uh, do that in terms of the, uh, for the last one, which is, I thought, for me, this is the one which we actually do all the time, even though we aren't given very often instructions, work with the fourth foundation of mindfulness, we're invited all the time to practice, particularly, I think, with the last one, the Four Noble Truths. In other words, we're invited to say, look for where you get stuck, look for where you're suffering, and then bring understanding to that, which may lead you to, if you're tight about something, to uh, untighten or to unclench. And so, in, in a sense, we do that practice all the time. You know, I have, in, as in the guided practice, I have, you know, I'm sitting and I notice that my body is getting tight around unpleasant sensations in my shoulder, right? And I notice that. We could call that <clears throat> the noticing of suffering, the noticing of some degree of um, reaction. And that's the first truth. The first noble truth is that there is suffering. Again, uh, it's a very common theme in our, in our teaching here, is that we distinguish suffering from pain. Suffering is the reactivity, pain is the present of the unpleasant. You know? And that we're, we, uh, we can be with the unpleasant <coughs> without suffering. That's possible. You know, without the reactivity. And so, <coughs> when we're using this uh, <coughs> last framework to guide us, <coughs> we, um, <coughs> we will, as it were, have our radar up for any moment of suffering. 
You know, when, do, when is there suffering related to the body, the thought, emotions, and so forth? And so I notice I'm getting tight in my shoulder and I'm starting to tighten and I'm, my mind's saying, I don't like this. When's the meditation going to be over? You know, why should I do I should have stayed in bed this morning. You know, why are we doing this? This meditation is crazy. I'm just, my shoulder doesn't feel good. I don't like this. Ah, I'm hungry. <laughs> you know, is that, anyone ever go on that kind of a meditation rant, we might say? <laughs> and so we could call that suffering. It's not the worst suffering, but that's suffering. That's reactivity, right? And we become aware of it. And what this fourth foundation invites us to do is to be present with it. Notice how it's suffering. What is reactivity like? What is that strong aversion like? And to hang out with it. But it goes further, and this is where it really starts to differ from the earlier foundations. We don't simply stay mindful, but we are invited to be mindful of suffering. But then we go a little further, and here we bring in some degree of reflection and thought. So it's also where the fourth foundation is different in that score as well, that we're bringing in more reflection and thought, whereas in the first three foundations, thought was more minimal. We might use thought to label, okay, there's anger, okay, but we don't think a lot about it. But in the fourth foundation, we bring in a little more thinking. We say, okay, there's suffering. <clears throat> and then we might also say, um, this was actually one of my first instructions when I started meditating. My teacher was Joseph Goldstein, and he gave me an instruction. He said, if there's suffering, where's the attachment? And that was a, that's a wisdom teaching. And this is really bringing in the second uh, noble truth, which is that uh, the cause of suffering is some kind of grasping. You know, and actually we could say more, more broadly that this is about reactivity in general. It's about grabbing hold of experience or pushing it away in some compulsive way, as with my shoulder. When I was kind of compulsively tightening around it, I could see, oh, the root of my suffering uh, isn't the unpleasant per se, it's the fact that I'm pushing away, tightening, contracting, and that's really the root of the suffering. And so I could explore that, or I might, um, you know, I might notice some kind of um, uh, emotion, and I might notice I'm feeling angry and I'm trying to get rid of the anger, you know, and I'm trying to push that away, and I might say, oh, hey, there's, you know, I'm, I'm, there's not just the challenge of the anger, but I'm pushing it away. And so then I would, uh, I would tune into that. And this, again, uses some reflection. I would tune into, is there some way that I'm being reactive with the sensation in my shoulder? Not hard to answer, right? Yeah, I'm, I don't like it. I want it to go away, and I'm tensing around it, right? And that would be getting connected with the second noble truth. The third noble truth would be that I, uh, the third noble truth is that of um, letting go of peace, we might say lack of reactivity, you know, in the mind, a kind of freedom, not being pushed here and there by our experience. And in this case, how would I apply that third noble truth to my shoulder, to my tightening? I would say, and this would be linked with the fourth noble truth, is the Eightfold Path, which is the set of perspectives and tools that help us to reach um, peace or freedom or, or letting go. And so how would I apply that to my shoulder? I would say, um, can, I, uh, 
can I just let go of the reactivity and the contraction and just relax into being with the sensations of the shoulder? You know, and then my wisdom could say, you know, this isn't causing damage. I'll be fine in 10 minutes when the bell rings. Can I just be with it? And, and uh, can I let go of my reactivity? And to the extent that I can't let go, can I watch it? And then I could say, can I just relax into the sensation? And that would be using, and then I might say, what helps me to do that? And, and I might think of a teaching I might have heard about where someone said in some meditative, calm voice, just let go. Right. And I might ch- channel that, or I might think of Sylvia, you know, says, you know, saying something, or me saying something, what, saying something that just resonates, and you remember a teaching, or remember something you read, and you're guided by that, and you just say, let me just relax with those sensations. And there you can just, and it's not pleasant necessarily, it still is unpleasant, but there's a letting go of the reactivity. And that would be a very simple application of the teaching uh, of the Four Noble Truths brought to experience. But can you see how it brings in these other dimensions? We're looking at a larger pattern, right? We're looking at a larger pattern of experience. It's not just the one moment, but I'm looking at, um, uh, looking at the unpleasant sensations, how I react to that, how there's some um, contraction or tensing, and then I bring in a teaching. So there's some reflection, bringing in the wisdom dimension, and then I respond. I let go. I don't just stay with the unpleasant forever. That would be the second foundation. But I actually respond by letting go. Right? So that's bringing in, you can see how this is bringing in these other dimensions, and it starts to enrich our experience. And this actually, as I say this, this is something that actually we do a lot. Even though we don't necessarily name it the fourth foundation, we do this a lot. We learn how to let go. And we say, we give ourselves pep talks and say, Donald, just just it's just relax, you know, and just be with that unpleasant sensation. I don't want to. Just relax. You want to learn, don't you? I guess. <laughs> right? And so we just do that. So, you know, we could think of, uh, you know, I'll just maybe give one more example. And then I have a little bit of a, I have a little bit of a treat for you in a moment. I have a little bit of um, poetry and music that I'm going to play to summarize this. Okay. Um, but I'll just give one other example, you know, which is that of, let's say, let's say I'm have, I have um, judgmental mind, okay? I'm really uh, judging myself. Let's say that uh, um, something didn't go well, let's say, in my talk with someone at work, okay? Something didn't go well, and I find myself, uh, you know, two hours later, I'm really, really reactive. You know, my mind's really reactive. There's a certain amount of suffering. I'm getting tense, and my mind's going over and over. There's a certain amount of suffering about what happens. How would I apply the Four Noble Truths to that? How would I bring that in, in a way that is really applying the Fourth Foundation? So I'll give an answer to my own question, <laughs> um, which is to say, first, I would really be with what's happening and notice where they're suffering. Notice that reactivity. I would just hang out with it. Let me just stay with this. That would be the application of the first noble truth. Let me just be with this. What's this like? What's really going on? That might be in itself a big shift because it takes me from being stuck, right? It takes me from being stuck or caught in the complaining mind or the 
the mind that's a little stuck in my own reactions, right? I say, let me just be mindful of that suffering. And then I can say, um, is there a way that I'm grasping at something or really aversive? You know, we could probably go in a few directions with this. One way to go would be to say, um, I'm, uh, you know, I'm reacting a lot and I'm actually, um, there's actually uh, maybe, uh, I think this shouldn't have happened and I'm really reactive and I'm judging myself uh, and I'm judging the other person. Let's say I'm judging the other person. Okay. Let's say I'm judging okay, to make it more realistic, maybe. <laughs> maybe. And I'm judging the other person and there's a lot of reaction and I'm um, in some way, uh, what might I be grasping at in that situation? Here I will invite an answer. What might I be grasping at if I'm judging the other person? If I tune into it and I'm Notice it. What am I grasping at? Justice. Yeah, it could be a few things. That my thoughts are adequate, my beliefs are correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could be, it could be, it could be, could actually be a few things. I could be grasping, maybe this is what you were saying, I'm right and I'm right about this is just or fair, right? I could be grasping onto my own views. I could be <laughs> grasping onto a sense of what I think should have happened, which, which is related. Um, it, could, it could actually be a few things, but I would ask myself in that moment, what's really there? And let's say I'm grasping on to um, kind of a judgmental model, which the, a very typical model it follows the form, I'm right, you're wrong. Right? And then let's say I, that I notice I'm grasping on to that. And let's say I want to uh, let go of that self-righteousness. doesn't mean that I don't later act. It's a little complex example. So. Um, but let's say that I want to let go of the rigidity of the I'm right, you're wrong, and let me just be with what I'm experiencing. Let me let go of that and just be with it. I'll say, okay, and I do that, and then I notice maybe, okay, maybe there's anger, here are the thoughts, and so forth. And I, it permits me actually maybe to respond more skillfully. It's a more complex example, but I would ask, where is their holding? Where is their reaction? Where is their grasping? And it might be in my view, my sense of righteousness, and so forth. And then I would, you know, there's again, more complex example. I might later, you know, say, what's a good response? Well, I want to talk to the person using skillful speech, you know, and, and without blaming or judging. It might, might be the direction I go. So a little simpler in the first example, right? The first example with the shoulder. But we really, here, what we really do is we use these Four Noble Truths as a guide to investigate experience, to, again, as in the guidance that Joseph gave me, notice, have your radar up for suffering. Then once you notice the suffering, ask, am I grasping or pushing something away with reactivity? If there's suffering, where's the attachment or compulsive aversion? And then can I in some way release that to be more skillful with the whole process? And that's that's what the practice is. And we can really... Uh, what this does is we have the mindfulness, we need the mindfulness for the moment of suffering, and then we set the whole practice in motion. So does that make some sense? It's pretty simple in a way. And you can see how it does bring in responsiveness, it brings in wisdom, seeing larger patterns. We could also do this with, you know, with personal patterns and see 
you know, ask what triggered that, you know, and where did my mind go? How can I release it? So I'll, maybe I'll come back to that next time, looking at the more personal patterns. I had a little bit of a treat. I think I'll see if the technology works. But it um, occurred to me, I, I was once a student of Allen Ginsberg, the poet. And I, I studied at Naropa for uh, two summers. And I remembered that he had a very wonderful poem put to music of the Four Noble Truths. Um, he called it uh, country eastern music. <laughs> and I want to play a short version of this. Listen to the music, or the poem. It's very, I'm just going to play it for about a minute and a half, but you'll hear the entirety of the instructions for the Four Noble Truths. And I think, I, I'm, think it's, even though it's humorous, I think it's quite reverential in a way as well. So it's not, I don't think this is light. It's really quite, quite wonderful. And so if you listen carefully, you're, you'll hear the language of the Four Noble Truths. The first line goes, born in this world, you got to suffer. <laughs> and then it goes on from there and talks about the different truths. And you can listen for, at a certain point, he talks about the eight steps of the path. He talks about you have a view and you walk, you know, you um, have your you talk, which is right speech. So anyway, OK, so here we go. Truths. Uh, you start again. Okay. Sure. Gospel. Sure. Gospel noble truths. Which is a country western form of Buddha Dharma in a nutshell. <laughs> world you got to suffer everything changes you got no soul you got no soul try to be gay ignorant happy you get the blues Talk when you talk. 
There. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so may that uh, guide us in our practice of the fourth foundation. And you can remember, you know, you can just start your day by saying, born in this world. <laughs> you got to suffer. So anyway, we have some time for uh, uh, reflections, for questions, if there are any, about how, especially how to work with this practice. Or anything brought up in the talk or, or, or anything. Please. Um, on the paper, yeah. there were some things that I didn't get. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, we we did look at that when we looked at the second foundation, and so more detail would be is in the talk. But that's a, it's generally um, it's generally a distinct distinction between uh, a sense of pleasant or unpleasant that's more conventional, like what we would experience in our daily lives: pleasant food, pleasant eating. That would be worldly. And again, so translation could be different. And then unworldly could be, some people translate it as spiritual or meditative. It's more the sense of pleasant and unpleasant. Again, one interpretation that we experience in meditation, where there's, there's different kinds. There, you know, there's different kinds of bliss, for example, that one might experience in meditation. So that's, that's what that gets us for us it's actually practically probably not very relevant, that distinction, but just for the sake of understanding, that's what it is. Okay. Then between <clears throat> mind and feelings, now I, I know you talked about this at great length, but seeing it here on the paper, I once more got a little confused. Yeah. So feelings is just pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and mind then includes all of the feeling, the word we use as feeling range. Yeah, right, right. I would, if I would have done this, I would have used a little different language, but this is, uh, this is the translation that Bhikkhu Bodhi uses. Feelings, um, it means feeling tone, the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It doesn't mean emotion. And so I would, I wouldn't have not, I would not have used that because it's too confusing to have feeling there. Feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasure, neutral. Emotion fits in the next one. I wouldn't put mind there either because that's confusing also. It's really, we might say, the mental and the emotional. Thoughts and, thoughts and emotions is how I would frame it, but uh, mind is a common translation, a little misleading, I think. So again, the confusion is understandable. Yeah. You. You're welcome. Yeah, Debbie, please. So this really is quite a departure, I think, from anything that we've learned before. Yeah. Uh, because this whole aspect of, of actually analyzing yeah. uh, an emotion or during meditation yeah. is, is, honestly, I don't think I've, I've ever heard it before. Yeah. Uh, so um, I'd be interested to learn more about it. Yeah. Um, and then also... Did you say that quote about um, uh, 
you have a, a negative thought to make it go away with clenched teeth and... Oh yeah, that was last time. Whatever. <laughs> like, how does that relate to this, um, this aspect of exploring the negative thought? Yeah. Yeah, two, two, um, two important questions. Um, um, they're, they're both um, big questions, uh, but they're important ones. So the first question is about, about the way that the instructions for the Fourth Foundation seem to bring in some degree of reflection, analysis, uh, use of inquiry, the mind, that is not part of the typical instructions and that Debbie in fact, had not heard before in this way. Uh, and I think that's an important point. I, I, uh, I think that's uh, accurate, that we often have understood uh, mindfulness practice as primarily receptive. We, as it were, we sit back and we notice experience and it's, I would say it's been primarily focused on the first three foundations, which we can understand as a more receptive kind of meditation. I really open up to what I'm experiencing. I, in a sense, receive it. I'm using receptive as opposed to active in that, in that sense. And this uh, fourth foundation is more active, uses the mind, reflection, and so forth. That's why I said it brings in the wisdom dimension. And, of course, uh, we need to do that skillfully. You know, there's a whole way in which uh, Westerners, coming from a mental culture, uh, let me, let me uh, say it this way, that there's been a hesitance to have Westerners bring too much thought into their meditation because we're thinking so much anyway. <laughs> right? And a hesitance to do that. And I think that's true historically, it's led us to emphasize certain parts of the teachings more than others. And yet, uh, traditionally, certainly, there's a very important place for what we call inquiry. Inquiry or investigation is actually one of the seven factors of awakening. It's the nature of an awake mind is to have the sense of curiosity, looking, trying to understand, and it's active. And it also involves, can involve reflection, it could involve questions, you know. How am I grasping right now, right? That's a question related to this practice. There's suffering. Is there grasping right now? Where is, that's what the practice that I did that guided by Joseph, right? If there's suffering, where is the attachment? And I would have to uh, ask that question. We need to be able to, as it were, answer that question experientially more than trying to figure it out. And that's, again, I think it's... Um, an important distinction, you know, that we need, I think, and, and it's one of the reasons why this is the fourth foundation, uh, that it presupposes that we've developed well the capacity to be mindful already. We don't bring in this um, inquiry and reflection practice right at the beginning, right? Especially for Westerners, that would be um, not so skillful. But that we are presupposing that we have the capacity to have a relatively calm mind, at least at times, and that we've been practicing mindfulness for some time. And then we, uh, and with the first three foundations, and then we bring in and say, okay, if we really want to develop wisdom, we need an active mind. You know, it's like, again, one of my Tibetan teachers, where, where again, there's, there's uh, 
very strong emphasis on inquiry. He says, he says, if you're not um, if you're not willing to think uh, clearly and actively, you won't do so well here. You know that there's a very important place for uh, clear thinking, reflective thinking. So, but we have to that has to come from a background of, of some degree of capacity for calm. So that, and we have to know when the thinking is just running away with us and dominant. And so we have to, it's like, can I ask the question, where am I grasping out of a relatively calm mind? That's what it takes, right, to do this well. Out of a relatively calm mind, and we have to know when we just go off on, we ask the question, then we start thinking for five minutes. That's not what this is about. It's more using language, reflection, but within the context of a relatively silent mind that's not dominated by habitual thinking. And so it takes that kind of uh, training or discipline, we might say. And there's a lot more I could say about that. Cause it's an interesting topic for me because uh, you know, I was conscious of the way that there was sometimes a pushing away of inquiry in meditative context. But here, yeah, it's bringing it back actively, but the key is to uh, not have it be connected with habitual runaway thinking. You know, that's, that would really be the key. And, and you can experiment when you're really quiet. You, know, like you can really ask questions and use, use um, asking questions in a dynamic way. And here it would be just to ask the question, I'm suffering, how am I grasping? And then to see if there's an intuitive response from your experience. And then the other, the other question, can you remind me what that was? Uh, that, that thing that I, I don't oh, know about the clenched teeth. Right. Okay, yeah. now I remember. Okay, yeah, this is, um, this is related to what I touched on at the end of last time, that um, a certain amount of wisdom <laughs> is to know when I'm capable of mindfulness. And sometimes a part of wisdom is to know that sometimes I'm not capable of mindfulness, that sometimes my mind is runaway. One way I was thinking about this is that um, there's a learning theory, which I sometimes give, which I like a lot in adult learning, which says that there's the comfort zone, there's the discomfort zone, and there's the overwhelm or panic zone. Okay? And, um, <laughs> and most learning, interestingly, occurs in the discomfort zone. A lot of learning occurs in the discomfort zone, and a lot of what we are meditative training is, as it were, to be comfortable with discomfort so we can learn. Now, if we're in the overwhelm zone, we can't really learn. And so we need to know if we're in the overwhelm zone, we need a different kind of response. And it's basically to move out of being overwhelmed, we might say. It's to come back to more balance. And for that, uh, last time I mentioned a lot of tools that would help us for that. Uh, and this is where that the text, which is uh, in this volume, Majjhima Nikaya 20, comes up. It's a text which is more or less a set of instructions for when thoughts are runaway, when you have overwhelming thoughts that are taking you away. And there were different uh, counsels given, the last of which was with clenched teeth, crush your thoughts. <laughs> you know, which may, may also be related to the cultural context. You know, uh, the... the um, skillful responses that I gave, for example, were, for example, when, you, when your metta practice or loving-kindness practice is really strong, that can be, because it's partly because it's a concentration practice, that can sometimes uh, 
help you come back to balance, where if I just said, let me be mindful, it wouldn't work at all. But I can actually use metta, and it can be like a parent holding a, a really distressed child. It can really bring back a certain calm and peace, or any number of things. You know, sometimes do physical activity, talk with a friend, take a walk, um, go to sleep for a while. <laughs> you know, uh, you know uh, just uh, cool out in some way. <laughs> Right? And we, we probably each have personal ways to do that. So that's an important uh, caveat for this. So my invitation for the next uh, two weeks, and I'll, I won't be here next week, but for the next two weeks, is apply this practice. It's really a very dynamic practice. And you can, use, you can do it in different ways. If you want to use the uh, guidance that Joseph Goldstein gave me uh, a lot of years ago, he said, you can just use that uh, question. If there's suffering, where's the attachment? Or, or we might say aversion. Just use that one-liner. You know, you're noticing suffering, and just try to be attentive to that. Again, the key is that we have enough mindfulness to notice that there's reaction, reactivity, or suffering. I'm using those words synonymously. Reactivity, resistance, suffering. Enough mindfulness to tune in that I'm in distress, and then use this practice, okay? Am I grasping? How am I tight? And then how could I uh, let go of that grasping or let go of that compulsive aversion? And try it out. Try it out with small things as well as larger things. Don't wait for the larger ones. Do it with small things, you know, just with the shoulder during meditation. That's where you can really learn about this because I think the uh, core dynamics are going to be exactly the same with small suffering as with large suffering. And if you practice with the small suffering, you'll learn more. Because the dynamics are the same. The principles are actually the same. And so it's like the training ground. We train with the small stuff to get to the big stuff. Don't just say, okay, i got to wait for immense suffering before I try this. <laughs> Not so good. You might, you know, I was going to say you might die on the way, but that's not, that wasn't very, wasn't, that was too flip. Anyway, sorry. Um, so, um, anyway, invite that practice, and we'll come back, come back and compare notes. You know, some of this could be related to holiday shopping or holidays, where there is sometimes suffering. So you're on, a, you know, you're on a long line for suffering. Your timing's not working. You're getting tight. Remember, bring in the four noble truths in the shopping center. Okay. So I'll invite uh, maybe just a moment uh, to uh, ask yourself, how might I apply this teaching in the next two weeks? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.